to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Amidst all the talk of the things that divide America, race and class always rise to the top. Over the years, there have been many efforts to understand the social, cultural, historical, and policy underpinnings of both of these divisions, and sometimes even efforts at solutions. From the 1968 Kerner Report that looked at the cultural upheaval in urban America, to Daniel Patrick Moynihan's idea of defining deviancy downward, to John Edwards talking about and laying the predicate for the idea of two Americas, to author Thomas Frank trying to explain why so much of poor white America votes against its economic self-interests, to more recently ta Coates trying to understand the core of black culture. Add to this list the work of my guest, J.D. Vance. He takes us deeply from his own profound experience into the heart of poor and rural America to understand the resentment, the intergenerational poverty, and the loss of hope that seems to be driving 45% of our politics today. J.D. Vance grew up in the city of Middletown, Ohio, and the Appalachian town of Jackson, Kentucky. He enlisted in the Marine Corps after high school, served in Iraq, and was a graduate of Ohio State University and Yale Law School. He's contributed to the National Review, and he's a principal currently at a leading Silicon Valley investment firm. It is my pleasure to welcome J.D. Vance to the program to talk about his best-selling book, Hillbilly Elegy, a memoir of a family and a culture in crisis. J.D. Vance, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. In thinking about poverty in America and race issues and class issues, one of the things that's particularly striking in, in reading Hillbilly Elegy is looking at this geographic division that so much of, of black poverty is really about urban America and about cities, and white poverty so much about the rural America that you write about. Talk a little bit about that first. Yeah, well, a big part of that, I think, comes from the migration patterns of each of the separate groups. So the the big migration right after World War II that brought a lot of black families into the big big cities to find factory and blue-collar work has, has sort of left them as, as the blue-collar work has gone away. But for a lot of the, the white population, they weren't moving as much to cities as some of them were. They were typically moving to more suburban areas like Middletown, which is where I grew up, or a lot of them were staying put in the rural areas because they were depending on coal or other manufacturing industries. So it's just a different migration pattern, I think, that this largely led to white poverty being something we associate with the suburbs, uh, and, and rural areas, whereas black poverty, we think of something that's primarily about urban ghettos. But what it also does is it makes that white poverty and rural America so much more disconnected, so much more removed, so much harder to understand from the coast, from the so-called elites. Yeah, that's definitely true. It's, there is a, a, a very big disconnect. If you're white and poor, you grow up in a place like eastern Kentucky or southern Ohio, you don't understand the elites. You don't necessarily even see them in your day-to-day -day life. And, that, of course, that goes in both directions. So if you're an elite, you live in Washington, D.C. or San Francisco, you don't really understand necessarily the plight of maybe a poor white person in the way that you maybe will see black poverty, um, even if you don't understand it or, or know a lot about it. So I do think it's probably the case that, Poverty generally is something that a lot of folks in the elites don't know about. They're pretty disconnected, even if they might live closer in closer geographic proximity to poor people. It's a really hard thing to understand unless you really know somebody who's living that life. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess in an urban environment, though, it is, it's more on your doorstep. If you live in Washington, D.C., or San Francisco, for that matter, you, you can't help but encountering it in ways that are really different than, than encountering or understanding rural poverty. Yeah, that's definitely fair. Um, it, it's, it's certainly the case that there's even more of a disconnect between white rural poverty and a lot of the elites. And, of course, we see that expressed in a lot of different ways, most famously in the 2016 election cycle in our mm-hmm. politics. But there, there is just a very broad sense of disconnect and segregation in a lot of these white communities. They feel like people on the coast, people who have money and power, they just don't even understand or know a lot of the struggles they're, they're uh, trying to, to tackle. Put this in a little bit of a historical perspective, J.D., in terms of the, the attitudes in the post-war period in places like the places you grew up, and, and really what's transpired since then, how hope has been lost since that post-war period? Yeah, it's, it's important to, I think, recognize that a lot of these folks were very involved in fighting World War II. They're very patriotic people. You see that, of course, in a lot of the cultural elements of of these areas, but it's something that people feel very, very acutely. They're the type of people who cheer up when they hear patriotic songs. They send their kids to to fight in the military at a disproportionate rate. And so a lot of the cynicism and a lot of the hopelessness that's set in in the past 20 or 30 years has taken this feeling of losing one's religion. So these people are devoted to their country, but at the same time, they feel like their country isn't necessarily devoted to them and maybe doesn't even care about them anymore. And it's a, it's a very almost spiritual, the sense of hopelessness and cynicism that's set in in some of these communities, which, of course, is not how it's always been. I think it's a pretty new phenomenon. It's not something my grandparents encountered in the 60s and 70s. It's something that's pretty unique to my generation, maybe even my parents' generation. Was there or have you been able to find a turning point for this? When, when did this part of the country begin to really get that sense of hopelessness and really that sense of disconnect from the rest of the country? Well, it probably started in the 70s when blue-collar work, manufacturing work, and so forth became harder to come by. One of the central premises of the book is that there was a real thing that happened here. There was an external economic Mm -hmm. problem that really beset these communities and affected them in a pretty significant way. And in response to that, economic problem, folks have become especially pessimistic about the future. They've lost hope that their children are going to have a better life. And most importantly, they started to see a lot of social indicators in their own communities go in the wrong direction, right? So they've seen rising rates of heroin epidemic addiction. They've seen rising rates of family breakdown. They've seen even rising mortality rates, which is just striking if you think of we're the wealthiest country in the world. And among this white, blue-collar population, mortality rates, or excuse me, mortality rates have actually been going up. That's really extraordinary. It's something that's unique among that, that group of, of the country, something you don't see in other parts of the world. As the economic situation changed, as the economic situation got worse, as you talk about in the 70s, Talk a little bit about the way it played itself out, not so much in terms of an economic response, but the way it engendered a kind of cultural response to that economic problem. Absolutely. So one of the the things I write about is that we've responded to this economic crisis, and I believe 
a very negative way. So instead of maybe recognizing that life is a little unfair and, and allowing that to color our politics and, and our response in, in a number of ways to the economic world we see around us, we become very hopeless and very cynical. So one of the things I, I write about is that growing up in Middletown, you really got this sense that your choices didn't matter that much, that no matter whether you worked hard or didn't work hard, the deck was really stacked against you. When I got into law school, my uh, dad, I believe, asked me if I had pretended to be a liberal on my law school application. And what that speaks to is this sense that the gatekeepers of wealth and privilege in the world, the Yales, Harvards, Ivy Leagues of our country, are, are cordoned off from people who are like us, that if you don't play the right game, you're not going to be part of these institutions or welcomed into these places in any significant way. And when you grow up thinking that, it colors the way that you interact with the world. It makes you a little bit more cynical, obviously, but it also, I think, warps the expectations you have for your own life. And that's really important. You don't want kids to grow up believing that their choices don't matter because then they don't try as hard, because then they don't try to overcome the very unfair circumstances that they've been born into. And my sense is that's a very big problem in my community. In many ways, it's this cultural spiral downward have there been any moments in time, if we look at this 35, 40-year period, when, when there were efforts to break that cultural downward spiral? I, I don't know if there have been efforts to break the, the cultural downward spiral, at least not in a significant, robust way. There's certainly an increasing recognition that things are going in the wrong direction. People see the families getting divorced. They see kids struggling with opioid addictions. They see churches that are less and less involved in communities. It's definitely something that people recognize, but in some ways it's a hard problem to solve, right? It's a tough nut to crack. So I don't know that people have really tried to address the problem in any significant way, even as a lot of folks recognize it. What has existed or not existed in most cases with respect to leadership in those communities? Well, you know, the, the, the political leadership in these communities has trended increasingly Republican for a lot of complex reasons. So it's, it's interesting that the Republican Party has become a very important institution in these communities. We tend to think of it, of course, as the party of the rich man. And in a lot of ways, of course, it is. But it is very popular. And you see a lot of GOP leaders and GOP party um, memorabilia in a lot of these areas because that's that's the political party that's really moved in and taken root there. Um, in terms of local leadership, it's maybe not something that, that these areas have a, a ton of. It's, it's hard for me to think of a really significant rural local leader who's trying to counteract or push against some of these problems, which of course may be uh, just part of the problem in and of itself. I mean, you see in the political framework the way in which these areas of the country have changed so much. I mean, many of these states, places like Kentucky, West Virginia, etc., you know, the heart of Appalachia, they were blue states at one point. You know, those of us that are <clears throat> old enough can remember John F. Kennedy campaigning in West Virginia. Oh, absolutely. And in a lot of ways, they, they still have a lot of the cultural attributes and the cultural sensibilities of the Democratic Party. These are not especially ideologically conservative areas, even though they tend to vote Republican. What they are is folks that are very frustrated with a number of different parts of the political process. And what's interesting is that the Republican Party thought for so long that it could sort of get away 
I think without really addressing the concerns of this group of people, you saw it in the way that the, the candidates they nominated, but also in the way that they conducted a lot of Republican politics. There was this presumption that they could always count on the white working class. The white working class would always go along to get along. But of course, if we've learned anything in the past couple of years, that hasn't really worked out for the Republican Party. And a lot of Republican elites are waking up to learn that the base that they took advantage for a very long time has sort of hijacked their their institution. And part of that goes to these cultural issues that we've been talking about and also the issue of religion. Yeah, it, it definitely, you know, religion is definitely a really important part of these communities, but it's it's important in a very weird and quirky way. So people certainly identify as evangelical Christian more than in other areas. They're very committed to their faith. It's a very important part of their identity. But if you look at actual church attendance rates, they're much higher in other areas of the country, let's say Iowa or, or Texas or uh, the Dakotas, than they are in southeastern Ohio or southwestern Ohio or Appalachia. And the reason that is, is, is largely because poor white folks have abandoned traditional religious institutions. It's kind of amazing to think among these people who, very self, who strongly self-identify as Christians, they're not going to church very much. And I actually think that has pretty negative consequences. I think church is a very good institution, a very important part of people's lives, but it's largely disappeared from a lot of these working-class communities. As we look at these communities today, is there a greater sense of hopelessness than, than when you were growing up there? Is there a, a deeper realization that the economic conditions that created some of these problems that we've touched on in the 70s, if anything, are getting more difficult, if anything, are getting worse for that part of the country? Sure. There's definitely a recognition that things are getting worse, and there's definitely a growing sense of pessimism. There's, it's interesting how realistic folks are about how these problems are going to be or won't be solved. I was talking to somebody who you know, was supporting Donald Trump back home a few weeks ago, and what was so fascinating about what he was saying is, yeah, I'm going to vote for Trump because he's really going after a lot of the people I want him to go after, but I don't think he's going to fix much. I don't think much is going to change. And it's amazing that people, even those who have found their, their sort of political savior in Donald Trump, recognize that the problems are going to outlast the 2016 election. And I think that speaks to how realistic but ultimately very pessimistic folks are about the prospects for a significant change, a significant reversal in a lot of the fortunes of these communities. What it really says is that resentment and anger really are the prevailing emotion more than any, any desire or hope to change the conditions. Oh, that's absolutely the case. It's, it's very true that people are resentful. They're resentful of political elites. They're maybe resentful of certain groups of people. There's, there's a lot for folks to be angry at. And there's also a recognition that the problems aren't necessarily going to get better. And so you have a politics that's increasingly colored by those frustrations, but is also very aware in an almost admirable way that things aren't necessarily going to get better with this or that candidate. Talk about this sense of, of blame, of looking for others to blame, the sense of learned helplessness that you talk about. It was, it's very natural in some cases, right? When, you, when things aren't going very well in your life, you want to look for a villain, you want to try to identify something about the world that doesn't necessarily implicate yourself. And so there is obviously a sense that things aren't going well, and so different people are looking for different villains. 
think the villain they found most of all is those with financial and political power, which is why you see a lot of criticisms of Washington elites or the Republican establishment or Hillary Clinton. I think it all ultimately reduces into people are frustrated with people they don't really understand that well with a political process that they think has been unfair and in some cases has indeed been unfair. It's not a totally unfair supposition that they have. But the problem is that some of these problems are not easily solvable by government. They're not easily fixable by some politician. And so I'm a little worried that in this effort to blame others for some of these problems, we're giving ourselves an excuse not to be introspective and self-reflective about how we can address certain challenges. You know, I talk about family breakdown and family violence. I think it's a very significant problem, both statistically and anecdotally. I don't necessarily see that as a problem that government can easily fix. And so if we're constantly blaming others, if we're looking externally and not being self-reflective about how to build better families ourselves, then we're not going to do the really tough work that's required to make some of these problems better. So I, I think, you know, my answer to this challenge is to simultaneously recognize the way that life can be unfair, to recognize the way in which our political process could do better for the white working class, but also constantly focus on what we can also do to make some of these problems better. Because if you don't do both, I don't think you're ever going to really solve the challenge. And as you point out, this is not a problem. This is not an economic problem that's going to be solved by suddenly having a 4% growth rate in the GDP or some kind of new tax scheme out of, out of Washington. And no, absolutely it's not. And there have been times when we've had relatively robust growth rates in the past 10, the past 20 years, you know, the, the middle part of the Bush administration, the early part of the Clinton administration, but still some of these problems, some of these social indicators got worse. So there has to be a recognition, right, that the economics matter, that they are certainly not helping in a lot of cases, but that even if you flip the switch and could solve all of America's economic problems, you're still going to have some of these issues that I write about in the book. Where does pop culture enter into this equation? Well, you know, th th this is a tough issue because I, I think pop culture probably enters into the equation a fair amount. And I think that's especially true with some of the, 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 the cultural attitudes towards sex and marriage. And, you know, th this is where I'll, I'll put on my, my conservative hat here. But, you know, one of the things I notice among a lot of my friends in San Francisco, whether they're conservative or liberal, is that they live these really traditional conservative lives, right? They go to work, they have marriages, they raise their families. Whether they're liberal or conservative, they have a life that I associate with sort of middle America. And what's ironic, of course, is that in middle America, you're not seeing a lot of the same existences. You're seeing a lot of divorce, a lot of chaos, a lot of kids shuttling in between homes. And so my view of this is that um, a certain amount of sexual politics, or I shouldn't say that, I'd say a certain amount of sexual liberalization is fine when your life is intact, but for folks who are really struggling to live successful marriages, to have successful lives, a certain amount of moral pressure from the broader community is actually quite helpful. It's good to be told that you should only be with your spouse. It's good to be told that marriage is important that, that living in a, in a two-parent family is a really important value. For folks who don't necessarily live those values, it's a much more important message than for folks who don't live those, or excuse me, for the folks who do live those values. 
So I, I, I do think that, that pop culture, to the degree that it, it could be changed to encourage more marriage and more two-parent families, would really benefit a lot of folks in this community who don't live successful marriages and don't have successful two-parent families. But isn't that isn't the pop culture really reflective of, of some of the broader, even the broader economic issues that we've been, been alluding to, in that we are living in an environment which is just bathed in change, change that's taking place in, in sexual politics, change that's taking place in, in the economy in profound ways, that it is, it is constantly a, a moving landscape. And, and that really, in some ways, goes to the heart of all of this. Yeah, that's definitely true, and I don't think that you can change pop culture and and solve a lot of these problems. That That's certainly not what I'm suggesting. But I, I do think that to the degree that pop culture sends a message that marriage and families are good things, then they may provide a little bit of help to folks who are on the margins, who are maybe living okay lives but are not quite getting the message from the culture that they need to. I certainly don't think that if you went back to a 1950s pop culture that all of these problems would go away. But I do think that it's interesting that in places of the country that are associated with liberal values, you see a lot more conservative family structures. And in places where you see conservative values preached, you see a lot of family breakdown actually practiced. Put that in the context of your own time growing up and, and, and how you were able to make it out of that environment and what it took, what kind of environment it took for you to do that? Yeah, well, my family was very chaotic. I grew up with a mom who struggled with addiction, a mom who shuttled us in between, you know, one partner to the next, one husband to the next. It was a very chaotic world to grow up in. There was a fair amount of domestic violence and domestic abuse. It was not that uncommon in the world that I grew up in. But it was very, very bad for kids who grow up in these environments. And it's not surprising that the kids who grow up like me typically don't do especially well. The statistical deck is stacked against them. What saved me were a couple of things. One, my grandparents were very active in my life. They made sure I had access to some of the safety and stability that maybe I didn't have at home. Um, Eventually, that turned into me living with my grandma full time when I was 13 or 14. That was a really important part of my life. And another really important part of getting out for me, getting out of that cultural mindset, was joining the Marines when I was 19, because that, one, it gave me uh, some exposure to a new way of living, gave me a a relatively stable job, but it also provided this really intense four-year training and character education that I really needed. It taught me a lot of things that I didn't know about the world, and all of those things gave me the opportunity, I think, to make some better choices and to live a happier life. But it's interesting, some of the reviews of the book have noted that, you know, it, it, it's a heartwarming story about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. But I really think the lesson of my life is that for kids like me, the deck is really stacked against them, and you need a lot of things to go right for those kids to have much of a chance. For me, it was my grandparents who were incredible, but a lot of kids won't have that. And I'd like for us to think a little bit more deeply about how we give more kids like me, the hand up that my grandparents gave me. How do we then take your experience and the, th- the exactly the things you're talking about, and how do those, or can they morph into policy? Well, I think that some of them can morph into policy. There's some really interesting research, for example, about the role of, 
of parent advisors. You know, social workers will go into the home and effectively teach parents how to interact with their children. They'll show them how, you know, using certain words or communicating them with them in a certain way promotes positive habits, promotes positive character development. I think those are the sorts of lessons that we should draw from my life, which is that family and cultures and neighborhoods and communities really matter. And if we focus all on the economic stuff, if we don't really think about how to make people's homes and communities better, we're not going to really address the problem. So I, I do think that there are lessons to draw from my book. I write some about policy in my book, so that's obviously not the focus. Mm-hmm. But there, there's more that we could do so long as we really recognize the scale and the scope of the challenge, which, again, isn't necessarily an economic problem as much as it is a problem of neighborhoods and families. And to the extent that that a lot of this part of the country and a lot of the anger and the hopelessness and, and the poverty that we've been talking about is getting a voice in the context of this election cycle, do you see that as, as a positive or negative? Is, is the anger going to be antithetical to dealing with policy solutions that, that maybe come out of your experience and, and that are part of what you were just talking about? Well, my worry is that in the short term, it definitely is antithetical. I, I don't think that we're going to be able to have the conversation we need to have so long as our politics is so angry and so outward focusing. Though my hope is that over the long term, what this election has done is really shine a light into some of these communities and make a lot of people aware of the problems that exist. And if we're compassionate about those problems, if we're understanding about those problems, if we have a politics that it both recognizes the difficulties of the white working class and thinks seriously about how to help them, then my sense is that we're going we're gonna to tackle this problem head on over the long term. Though, again, I'm not super hopeful over the next 18 months, but I'm a lot more optimistic that this conversation is going to take us to a place where we need to go over the next four to ten years. J.D. Vance, his book is Hillbilly Elegy, a memoir of a family and a culture in crisis. J.D., I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Yeah, thank you. It was really nice to talk to you. Thank you.